Veritas. I'm super excited, admittedly a little bit nervous to be up here talking to you guys tonight. Um, but for those of you that don't know me, my name is Jensen. Um, my husband is here. His name is Sam. Um, and I've been on staff with Veritas for a little bit over a year now, basically ever since I graduated from Mizzou. Um, another fun fact about me that maybe you guys want to know, maybe you don't, but I'm going to tell you, uh, is that I like to be out in nature. I enjoy nature, but recently I've actually figured out that I'm not very good at the whole nature thing. Um, this is actually perfectly exhibited in a trip that I took a couple of years ago with my friend Reagan for spring break. We like had a tent, we were ready to go, we were gonna hike all week, we were going to the Grand Canyon, it was gonna be awesome. Um, and we, we did all those things. The thing is, is that I found out that camping, it's, it's really difficult. Um, the, the tent is outside and it snowed at the Grand Canyon. I didn't know that Arizona got snow and so I wasn't ready. It was really cold, also the ground was hard. We didn't secure our tent properly once and so a windstorm happened and it blew away. We figured out how to secure it after that. But there's this picture, hopefully, that's gonna come up behind me from one of the last hikes that we took on our trip. Yeah, that's me. Um, so we took this hike around noon, which is not the time of day to take hikes because it's hot. Reagan was wearing jeans. We forgot water, also my inhaler, which basically I need to breathe because I have asthma. And so this is what happened. This is the face of someone who was naive enough to think that hiking to the delicate arch, it's literally the name of the hike, the delicate arch hike, was gonna be easy. It wasn't, it was honestly, so difficult. It kept going up and then you'd get to the top and then it would go up again and then I just wanted to quit. But this is the day that I realized that I don't like nature as much as I thought I did because to see the beautiful things you have to end up looking like this and it's just not worth it. And apparently, I, I'm not alone in these feelings. Um, the Bridger Wilderness area in Wyoming, they had these feedback cards that you could leave like notes for the staff there on how to improve the park. And these are a few of the things that people actually said. The places where trails do not exist are not well marked. The trails need to be wider so that people can walk while holding hands. Trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid trails that go uphill. I'm into that one. Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the area of pests. This is my favorite one. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there a way that I can get reimbursed? Please call this number. All you real hikers out there think that these people are insane, but honestly for me, being the, I like to be out in nature, but it's like really hard kind of a person. I relate to like most of these, the uphill part is the worst. These feedback cards, they basically say, wouldn't hiking be better if I could see all the beautiful things, if I could feel the accomplishment of knowing that I went on a hike without having to deal with all the difficult stuff? Like, I'll take the trendy pics and the serene moments, but honestly, I'd rather not have the bugs and the hills and the wildlife. And as ridiculous as these requests are, because yes, I do know that they are ridiculous, I don't think they're that far off from our cultural moment. We don't like things to be difficult. I don't know if you noticed, but we've become a culture obsessed with efficiency, convenience, and ease. Our Instagram highlight reel is digital proof that we're all striving to show this beautiful, easygoing life. 
And when we do tend to face difficulty, we kind of try to hide it and we just focus on how can I get through this to get to the good stuff of life? This good life the culture sells us and that we're selling each other, it's a life without trial. Difficulty, problems, and trials, they're just not our friend. We want the path of least resistance. And if you don't believe me, think about going to class on Mizzou's campus in the winter. I promise you that there are people in this room who have asked their roommate, they live on or near campus, and they've asked their roommate to drive them to class because they didn't want to get chilly. Maybe you're too proud. I'm not. I did that. That's me. Um, maybe you're too proud to ask a friend, but you know that everyone in this room has tried to cut through as many buildings as possible on your way to class to get out of the rain or the snow or the cold. You're all guilty. I know. I see your faces. When I was in college, I would literally do anything to avoid weather that wasn't 60 degrees and sunny. I hope that you can see that this desire for the ideal life of convenience and ease, it has the power to shape the way that we approach every area of our lives. And because of this, we've all become masters at avoiding trial. And so when we read what Peter has to say about the Christian life in trial, our gut reaction is to cringe. Let's see what he has to say in 1 Peter 4.12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's telling his audience something really important about trials. He's telling them that trials are expected in the Christian life. Do not be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. The message is clear. Don't be shocked. Don't think that trials are some strange or outlandish thing. No, expect fiery ordeals. It's a little intense, right? Fiery ordeals. What's he talking about here? Uh, well, here, specifically fiery ordeals, um, he's talking about trials that come as a direct result of living faithfully in the Christian life. So while tonight we could certainly talk about all kinds of trials that we're facing, we're gonna be paying specific attention to the kinds of trials that Peter says we can expect if we follow Jesus faithfully. Now remember, we live in this culture that's bought into the idea that the good life is synonymous to a life, with, to a life of convenience and ease, which means that the offer of faithfully following Jesus, it's just not that tempting when it means that we should expect trial, and not just expect trial, but that trials come as a direct result of living this life faithfully. Why would I choose a life of guaranteed trial over this life of ease that Coulter's offering me? Well, I wouldn't. Unless we're missing something. Unless there's something about this life of trial that's worth holding on to. Peter tells us that there is. This brings us to tonight's passage. We're gonna be looking at the first couple verses of 1 Peter 1. Specifically, right now, we're gonna look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
So when we read scripture, it's important to remember that these words are being written to a specific group of people in a specific time. And if you were here last week, Kyle helped us understand the context of who this specific letter is being written to. Peter's writing to encourage followers of Jesus who are currently in a physical exile. They were facing a similar question that we face today. Are they going to follow Jesus and face opposition from those around them? Or will they avoid those trials by living in the cultural narrative of their day? They felt this tension with their culture, and along with it came the probable temptation to avoid the trials that come along with the Christian life. And it's precisely because of this that Peter starts off his letter by reminding them of the promises that God makes to them, even amidst these trials. And these promises, they're promises of true hope. The first of these promises is that in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. This idea of new birth can be really confusing, mostly because we've all already been born, not to mention that going through birth a second time, it's just physically impossible. But that's okay, because we're not talking about a physical new birth here. When Peter says new birth, he's pulling directly from the teachings of Jesus in John 3.3. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. So just as our common conception of birth is to bring about a physical life, Jesus is telling us that this new birth is bringing us into a new way of life. When we're born, we enter into the physical world, and when we experience this new birth in Christ, we enter into a new order of things, a new kingdom. Jesus says, that's the kingdom of God. And along with this kingdom comes a calling. It's a call for change. When we're born the first time, we're born into a very specific ethnicity, a socioeconomic class. We're given citizenship in the country that we're born in, and we're given biological DNA from our parents. From the moment that we enter this world, we have defining characteristics and an identity that's based on all of those things. And in the same way, when we're given this new birth, we're ushered into an entirely new citizenship. And it's a citizenship in the kingdom of God that completely reshapes and rebuilds our relationship with the world around us. God's kingdom, it comes with a new way of living that isn't defined by the ways of this world, but by the words of scripture. This new citizenship, new identity, it completely redefines our relationship with the world. No longer are we children of this world but children of God. This idea of citizenship, it shouldn't be new for us. In our current cultural context, we're facing hundreds of different groups that are vying for our allegiance, whether we realize it or not. Political parties, social justice movements, different organizations on Mizzou's campus, your future employment or future industries, sororities, fraternities, even your friend groups. We mark ourselves as citizens of these groups with our bumper stickers, our t-shirts, our Instagram bios. We give them our time, our skills, and our resources. And these groups, they're all asking for us to buy into their way of thinking, their way of life. And they all offer us something in return, a cause, a lifestyle, friendship, status, money. The thing is, This new birth, it means forsaking all of these other things as our main identity and entering into this new society. It means looking to the Bible for answers before culture. It means choosing to follow what God asks of you, even if it means that you don't align with popular opinion. This this choice, 
it's hard. It isn't easy. But be encouraged because what we are offered as citizens of the kingdom of God far outweighs what we're offered as citizens of this world. Look again at verses three and four. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So Peter's telling his audience that although being called into this new birth means forsaking your citizenships in this world and all that comes along with it, it also means that you're gaining a citizenship in the kingdom of God and you get all that comes along with that, a living hope and an inheritance. So think again about where our original audience is. They've been, they're in exile, they've been cast out of Rome, away from everything that they know, and they're surrounded by these pagan ways of thinking. And much of the thinking that surrounded them was really hopeless. Greek philosophers of the time talked a lot about the despair of life, how it was better not even to be born at all because it all just ends in this unending night. They were surrounded by hopelessness. And as humans, we're constantly trying to figure out the answer to hopelessness. Even today, psychological research has actually confirmed that hope is a powerful tool in overcoming negative emotion. And so as you can imagine, if you look up hope on the internet, you can find hundreds of different articles with titles similar to Hope, the magic ingredient you need in life. As I read, though, I was struck by the definition of hope that's being prescribed here. They say, having hope is to imagine a positive outcome. Article after article describes how to seek positivity, imagine the possibilities of life, and then put your hope in those things becoming a reality. So when life gets overwhelming because it's just not what you thought it would be, well, imagine a future reality where you get the job or the relationship or the healing that you so desperately want now and hope in that becoming a reality. Put your hope in possibility. But if you really think about it, is it all that hopeful to put your hope in whatever you can imagine? It might grant momentary relief, yes. But what if what you imagine doesn't come true? What if your hope in hope fails you? And what kind of hope can this offer us in the face of death and other things that are just completely out of your control? This is why the promise of a living hope that's offered here is so powerful. This isn't a hope in the possibility of things. It's a hope that's living because it's tied to Jesus who overcame death and is ever living. It's a hope in something concrete, something promised, something real and not imaginary. We have hope that this new birth, it comes with an inheritance. Now when Peter talks about inheritance, those familiar with the Old Testament would be pointed back to the promise that God makes to the Israelites to give them an inheritance. Early on, God makes this covenant with his people to bring them into the promised land. And the first few books of the Bible tell the story of God doing just that. It's a long and it is a painful journey, but it's a journey that was worth it because they knew that the Lord had promised to give them this land as an inheritance. Joshua 11.23 is the culmination of this promise. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Just as the Israelites were promised and given an inheritance, 
so too are we. Our inheritance, it's an eternal inheritance that's awaiting all of us who live faithfully. Just as death could not conquer Jesus, so too can death not take away your inheritance. Look at what the verse says. Our inheritance can never perish, spoil, or fade. You have never experienced anything like this in your life. One scholar puts it this way. This gift, it's untouched by death, unstained by evil, and unimpaired by time. It is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. This is the promise of what is to come for those who faithfully follow Jesus. This is why we have hope. We've put our hope in something that lasts, something that's secure. Peter's original audience, they were in a place of exile, and so they, they didn't have a lot to their name, and so this offer of inheritance probably would have been enticing to them. But I think because we live in a world where we have so much and in such excess, that it's so easy to miss what's being offered to us here. A couple of months ago, I was at a wedding with my husband, and while we were at the wedding, somebody took a baseball bat to our window, smashed in, stole all of his electronics, his computer, his headphones, and they took a laundry basket of all of my clean clothes, like literally all of my clothes. And as ridiculous as it sounds, I was devastated, and I was crying on the car ride home as Sam was telling me all the different clothing articles that were no longer mine. It's a little ridiculous, but honestly, replacing it was such a hassle. And it was kind of scary to think about how I didn't have the power to stop someone from taking all of those things from us. I clearly felt the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, when he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. I felt the reality of how quickly the things we have in this world can be taken away from us. Like Jesus says, nothing I have here is secure. And he says this not to strike fear in our hearts, but look at the last bit of the verse. He says this to remind us of what is secure, what we can put our hope in. And that's our eternal inheritance. Do you believe this? Or are you still relying on all the things that you have in this world to feel secure? Maybe it's your style, your skills, your friend group, your status, the organizations that you're a part of. Maybe it's your family. I realized that I had put a lot of stock in some of these things when they just kind of disappeared. If you lost everything that you had in this world today, would that be devastating? Because it could happen. Nothing in this life is promised to you. Nothing except this inheritance. Peter tells us that this inheritance, it's kept in heaven for us, and it's secure because it's being shielded by God's power through our faith. It's not up to us, it's not up to you to protect this inheritance because you couldn't, even if you tried. God is carrying you through this life. He's the one that walked through the wilderness with the Israelites to deliver them into the promised land, and he's the one who's walking through this world with you 
protecting your inheritance and waiting to deliver you fully into this new life in the kingdom of God. This is good news. And it's life-changing news. And it was vital that the early Christians living in exile believed and understood this. Why? Well, let's take a look at verses six and seven. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. So Peter first reminds them that the promises that God makes to them, because he knows that these early Christians, they would face trials. Don't forget, trials are the result of the Christian life. Their calling, it puts them at odds with their culture, and it would be incredibly tempting for them to give in and acclimate to the world around them. And so here, he's encouraging them by telling them that those trials, they're not arbitrary, they're not just random, but that those trials, they have purpose. Do you guys believe that your trials have purpose? Because Peter's telling us that they do. Look at verse seven. These, their trials, our trials, have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. Our trials, they're proving that our faith is genuine. If trials are the result of a Christian life, then facing trials means that we're being faithful to that call. A genuine faith, it's incredibly valuable. Peter tells us it's even more valuable than gold. Why is that? Well, because our genuine faith is fueling our hope, and it's bringing us through this life and to our inheritance. Think about it. If you have a woman who's working in a factory and she's told that at the end of three months of work, she's gonna be given $1 million, she's probably gonna be willing to deal with some poor factory conditions and maybe some annoying coworkers because she knows that something greater is coming. She has faith in what's to come. But what about the other people in the factory that don't know about the million dollars? They don't know that something greater is coming. Well, when the conditions in the factory get hot or their coworkers really start to annoy them, maybe they start out by complaining and then they lack motivation to come into work. And then if it gets bad enough, eventually they just quit. Because what they were working for, what they were enduring for, well, it just wasn't worth it. If our faith is genuine, then we're like the woman working in the factory who knows that these trials that she faces now are momentary and incomparable to the joy that's coming if she faithfully fulfills her job. But if we lack true faith, we're like the other workers. When things get hard, we quit because we don't really understand or believe that the job was worth the hassle. Do you really believe in the promises that God is offering you? Or when the things of the Christian life ask of you get hard, do you compromise and do you run away? When you have conflict with a friend, do you seek out biblical reconciliation even when it's uncomfortable? Or do you talk about the drama with your friends and sever that relationship eventually? 
When you're faced with a choice between having sexual integrity or indulging your desires, do you give in because it's just too hard to keep saying no? When there are people in your life that are hard to love, do you step in and do you love them just as Jesus loved the unlovable? Or do you ignore them because it would take a lot of time and effort and honestly, you just don't wanna be associated with them anyways. When biblical truth comes face to face with cultural ideals, do you stand firm in what you believe or do you shy away from hard conversations? Or maybe when standing up for truth means going against popular opinion, you tend to rationalize cultural ideologies because it's really hard to hold to everything that the Bible says. I would venture to guess that there are many of us in this room who have brought our tendency to avoid trials into the Christian life. The problem is that when we do this, when we take the easy way out, when we run away from these difficulties, we're not proving that our faith is genuine, but that it's weak. We're choosing the convenience of a trial-free life over the living hope that's offered to us through faith in Christ. If this describes you, then it's time to recognize that your faith, it might not be as genuine as you think. But maybe you have been living faithfully. You've been living in this tension for a long time and it's weighing down on you. Or maybe you want to step into this new life. You want to refine your faith and hold fast to this hope, but it honestly seems really difficult. To a certain extent, difficulty is exactly where the Christian is called to. We live in a world that isn't our home. This is, this is what it looks like to be a Christian in a world that isn't. We long for the promises that are given to us now, but not quite yet fully fulfilled because we still live in this broken world. In the next few verses, we see though that this difficulty, these trials, they're not a reason to despair, but actually a reason to rejoice. Chapter one, verses eight and nine, though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. So even though we live in this tension and the promise of inheritance is still ahead, we know that it is secure and that we're born into new life. We believe in him and his promises. Continuing on, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? Why do we have this joy even though we live in this tension and we face these difficulties? Well, because you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What is to come from this new life is far greater than anything that this world can throw at you. So rejoice. Rejoice in your trials because they're strengthening your faith and they're reinforcing your belief in the promises of God. Rejoice in your trials because God has promised that he's carrying you through them and he's protecting your inheritance. This world, it may bring trials into your life because of your faith, but God will bring his promises to completion and he has the final word. I'll admit, this is completely counterintuitive, mostly because it's completely countercultural. 
the promise of a trial-free life is so tempting because it hits at our desire to avoid difficulty. This desire, it makes it hard for us to joyfully embrace what the Bible is telling us here. You will face trials. But don't forget, those trials, they have purpose. They're proof that we believe in the promises of God and are being faithful to his call. And so we rejoice and stand firm in Stand firm in the face of opposition because we know the weight of what is being offered to us. Inexpressible and glorious joy. If you're a Christian, does this describe your life? Do you rejoice because of your Savior even in the midst of trials and difficulty? Or are you too busy mastering your ability to avoid trials that you forget their purpose when they come? Because they will come. Are we going to be a people that rejoice or a people that run away? Tomas Martinez was a 67-year-old man living in Bolivia. He was homeless, he had separated from his wife, and he was living a life abusing drugs and alcohol. And one night, a group of police officers began to approach him, and he assumed that they were approaching him to arrest him for possession of drugs or old charges that he had evaded in the past, and so... He slipped out the back and he ran far, far away. The officers, they tried to chase him and find him, but they were ultimately unsuccessful. The thing is, is that those officers, they weren't approaching him to arrest him. They were looking for him to tell him that his wife, whom he had separated from, had died and that she had left him an inheritance of $6 million. Tomas was so busy running from what he thought was another difficulty that he rejected his inheritance of $6 million. He thought he was making the best choice. He had no idea that he had an inheritance of far greater worth than anything he could have ever imagined waiting for him if he had just stayed. He did not know what was at stake. He didn't know what he was giving up. Do you, do you know what is at stake? Do you really understand this good gift that is being offered to you? Because if you do, then you don't have to run away from the difficulty of the Christian life. No matter how hard it is, no matter what the world throws at you for being a Christian, remember, your inheritance is safe. And it's waiting for you if you continue in faithfulness. As the music team comes back up, we have a choice to make. And this is a choice between striving for a trial-free life or following Jesus into a life of trial. He's asking us to fight our temptation to become masters at avoiding trial and instead to take hold of this inheritance of new life, a living hope, and glorious joy, no matter the cost. Jesus, he wasn't a master at avoiding his trials. He walked right into the face of incredible difficulty, forsaken by the world, dying on a cross, dying a criminal's death, because he knew that this would bring life and hope for you and for me. He leaned into his trials because he knew that it was worth it. So Veritas, let's follow the example of Jesus and stand firm in the face of trial and difficulty, 
because we know that it's in those moments our faith is being strengthened, our allegiance to our Savior is being confirmed, and an inheritance of far greater worth than anything that we can imagine is securely waiting for us to take hold of. Let us be a people that rejoice in that truth. Amen.